0: Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Leadership, a podcast for leaders everywhere doing their best to learn and lead in a rapidly changing world with your host, Helen Woodward. We're here to share leadership learning from everyday work and research, helping leaders and teams be their best. So wherever you are, when you listen, I hope you find something to make you smile, a new insight and a question to think about. Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Leadership, My guest today is Kristen Shannon. Welcome, Kristen.
1: Thanks for having me. Excited to be here.
0: Lovely to have you. So, Kristen, you're the CEO and founder of Highliner Technology, and I know you're a results driven executive with 10 years experience in strategy development, operational execution and organizational scaling. And your career, you've had a focus on high pressure companies going through periods of significant and fast paced growth. So there's lots to talk about here today. Tell us a bit more about what you're working on currently.
1: By way of background, as I said, I work in organizations going through rapid growth, change, and scaling. Um, I started my career actually in the education sector, which where you and I overlap quite a lot, um, and then moved into the more technical space and tech startups, predominantly deep tech startups, or startups working in kind of the business-to-business corporate sector. Um, So right now, what we do is we go in and we work with the leadership team, but companies overall post, usually a funding round, um, but helping them think about where their people meet systems and process. So what made them successful up to that point, but what things do they need to put in place to help them grow to the next level? And this tends to be organizations that have new products. So they're like developing very new things or innovating quite rapidly, but also they might have had, they might've been 10 people around a table last year and now they're 50 or 200 and next year they're going to be 500 so it's a lot of thinking about what leadership looks like both at the top of the company but as they bring in new leadership layers and how they build that consistency and growth um so we're currently we have a couple different clients we're working with at any one time right now we're working one of them i'm thinking a lot about because they are in that process of how do we build leadership at that team level, not just at the founder level, because they were smaller before, everything could run through the founders. But how do we actually make our teams build not just management, but leadership in those areas and help them align the whole company, not just their individual teams, which is a problem we see and talk about a lot with a lot of our companies.
0: Sure, sure. And that's kind of the engine room of leadership, isn't it? Exactly. Exactly isn't it a company leadership it's the team leaders it's what's going on there that makes such a difference to productivity definitely so so tell us about your education and your early career because as you said you started off very much in the education sector so tell us about that
1: yeah, so right out of uni, I went and worked in an organization in the US called Uncommon Schools, which is a group of charter schools, but with a very strong focus on social justice and helping students in areas of high need. And when I joined them, we're growing really rapidly. So we were adding probably between five and eight sites a year and lots and lots of students. And then I moved to the UK and worked for a very similar organization called ARC, ARC Schools, um, which Wonderful organization, again, working in the areas of high need, but also rapidly growing. So, when I first started there, I came in, did recruitment, and then was head of recruitment when we were hiring 75 people a year. And when I finished there after seven years, we were hiring 800 people a year. So, <laughs> lots of people, lots of change. Um, and we, at the time, we were also expanding both in London, but also in different regions, our kind of the global component of global schools that they're also working with. And for me, it was very much both of these organizations I chose because they were driven by this social justice focus, helping students who didn't otherwise have access. And we work both at the principal level of bringing in new principals, but also all the teachers. And I think education's a really interesting space for leadership because it's one of the few per- professions where you're actually working independently a lot of the time, but you are the leader to your classroom at all times. So everything we think about um, I'm sure you guys, you've talked about this before and think about it a lot. But as a leader, we set so much of the tone for our organization. So we set the weather, essentially. Um, and I think teaching is such a great example of this, because if a teacher walks into a classroom, full storm, bad mood, holding on to things from the day before, the class is going to go chaotic, deteriorate into chaos. Um, whereas if you start the day fresh, starting with a positive attitude, that sets a different tone for the students. And I see this now in our startups too. In startups and scale-ups more than anywhere else, founders are so much at the heart of the organization more than any other type of leader because they created this from nothing. And how they show up heavily sets the tone for the organization, but it's a huge burden. I think that's a really, really big ask that we put on teachers and that we put on leaders, how you're showing up to the people around you always influences it. And sets that. So that's for me, something that I think a lot about that, like the burden that's on them. I, have you ever have you come up with a way to help leaders with this ever or how you help coach them through this? I don't know if I have a good solution other than recognizing it.
0: Uh, no. I mean, that's a really good question, actually. And thank you. And thank you. Um, and this is the this is the messiness of leadership, isn't it, which I really love. And I think it's a mixture of seeing, as Kristen. I think there are there are definitely things about our behaviour because, however we're feeling, we can choose our behaviour. All right, that's you know that's part of being a civilized person. You know, is that we choose our behaviour to a large extent. Mm-hmm. But I'm also aware that our emotional space predisposes us to behave in particular ways. Okay, so we you know we're very much emotional beings. We can't get away from that, and you can't arrive at work without your emotional self, uh, any more than you can arrive at work with, you know, without your whole body, you know, we, we're there, the whole of us is there. Um, and some of the way I'm starting to learn about and work with this is through the the coaching work that I'm doing currently, I'm doing some work on ontological coaching, which is very much based around looking at The way we talk about the world that we live in, the way we talk about our work, the way we experience the world. So our narrative, if you like, which sets our tone, our emotional and mood space that we inhabit, which often has a linguistic foundation, and then quite literally how we kind of embody that. So I'm often working with leaders now on those three areas all at once, sometimes more so than working on actual issues because how we address an issue
1: depends on how we frame it up, you know? And the narrative that we're telling ourselves around it. Yeah, that's super interesting. And I think a lot of the founders that I've worked with over time, we what's, I think one of the things that makes startup challenging is what makes you successful up to one point doesn't make you successful at the next point.
0: Absolutely.
1: And so that like constant change and the narrative a lot of leaders that I've worked with have, and a lot of the founders is like, well, I'm maybe I'm just not good at this. Maybe I'm not meant to be the CEO. Maybe I'm not meant to be the CTO. Maybe I don't have what it's take. Maybe I don't know how, I, I'm just doing it wrong. And I try to help them Marie family. like, Actually, you were the perfect CEO up to this point to do this, to find product market fit. The way you manage your team and led your team was the right way to manage it. The key is you now need to understand that actually you have to manage differently for this next phase. And that's not about you being good or bad or whether you can be a CEO or not be a CEO. It's just about recognizing like the behaviors that made you successful up to this point won't make you successful in the next one. And you get to control whether or not you can make those changes. Um, So I think it resonates a lot that like that story we tell ourselves is very different if it's, I can't be a CEO versus the behaviors I use as a CEO at this stage are not the ones that are gonna make me a successful CEO at the next stage.
0: Mm. One of the things I talk with leaders a lot about is enemies of learning. I like that. You know, because essentially coaching is a learning conversation. That's, you know, in essence, that's what it is. And the pace at which we're able to learn and grow as individuals definitely impacts on the pace at which the organization can learn and grow. Yeah, completely. An idea like maybe I'm just not good enough at this. Let's start there because that's a self-assessment. Can we ground it? Is there actually any evidence to support what you've just said? What standards are you applying, by the way, and where did those come from?
1: Yes, and they're like all over, and it's so many things and kind of picking that apart. And I think in education and tech, both of them have very high intensity, high fast pace. And having the time to like break that apart, I think is is a real challenge. And for leaders to have the headspace to do that. Think is a really, really hard thing.
0: Absolutely. And and that is, I think, you, you know, you're making a really good case for why coaching can be so brilliant for those people to actually push back the space, hold that space, and go right now, this is my learning conversation for my professional development to support the company, you know?
1: Yeah. Very similar as consultants, and we're looking at kind of strategy growth and the organizational change. And part of, I think the value we add is, yes, our experience of having seen it before, yes, the frameworks for it, but all of those things is really just helping create the space. So it's like, we're stepping outside of the like execution focus of today and thinking about that longer term picture. And you need to create some like really strong space to be able to do that with the number of things that are flying at you from all directions.
0: Mm, Absolutely. Absolutely. So let let me take you back to the kind of high growth recruitment issue, which I know is a a thing for schools and startups and multi-academy trusts. Um, So you had really high growth at Arc. But for anyone, there's a challenge about how when we grow rapidly, how do we keep consistency as that team grows with the people that we're bringing in? How do you go about that?
1: Consistency and consistency under pressure um, when you're growing at that pace. So I think there is the, and again, startups and education, I'm gonna keep saying this, but there is so much similarity because if you don't hire a role at a school, well, you don't have a teacher in front of a group of students. Like secondary slightly different. You might change the timetable, but fundamentally, like you have a gap that must be filled. And in startups, it's similar, like the pace at which you need to execute, every day you don't have someone in that role, the harder it gets to execute. And so that is just an enormous amount of pressure to get someone in, whoever it is, fill the role, no matter what. And so I think a lot of the work we do in terms of thinking about consistency, one has to do with codifying. So like, what is actually our standard? What are we we really looking for in this role? So what does that role need to accomplish? What strategically do they need to hit? But like, Objective is and what do they need to execute on? What kind of characteristics? So how do we codify culture and values and how we're assessing for that, I think is really important. So having that framework set first, be like, this is what we know we want. And then you have to have extra mechanisms in place when push comes to shove, when you're like, but maybe this person could be okay. So we knew we said what we wanted. They didn't hit it. Maybe you have to have some mechanisms to really evaluate that pushback. And one that I love, this is an Amazon one. It's part of their, they call it their bar Raiser method. And basically for every recruitment process, I think you have to have a manager from an unrelated team. So a team that's not dependent on your team's outputs has to join the final stage and can act as a veto because they're the only person in the group that doesn't have the recruitment teams incentivized to fill those roles. That's their job. The hiring manager is incentivized to ha- to fill that role. Whether it fits all the bars that you want, keeps consistency or not, you're incentivized to do that. So they're bringing someone who's completely not incentivized to do that, to fill the role, just to assess, do they meet the standard that we said we wanted? So for me, it's both those things. It's you have to like know the standard to get consistency you have to know what consistent good looks like and define that up front and then you have to have some sort of mechanism in place to fight that i'm going to hire it in this moment the recruitment team acted as like as really close partners to the schools and sometimes we helped in that and being like having an outside perspective and also the perspective of like we know there are other candidates that can help fill this so you don't have to make that compromise and then sometimes other leaders did it for each other too giving a voice to the like I'm going to hold the line on this role, mm. I think is really important.
0: Mm, that's really helpful to know. That's really helpful to hear. And I love the idea that that person has the power of veto as well.
1: It feels like a big jump. And I think not all organizations can be like, I'm going to hand over the veto power away from the hiring manager. I've seen some startups, they do this, like essentially the founders hold this role for a very long time, which has pros and cons, can create a huge bottleneck. Um, but I, for early hires, I think actually it is useful to have like that really firm. Um, and then as you get later, you kind of scale that with this bar raiser process. It's an interesting one. It takes a lot of commitment. The organization has to say, we really care about this to be able to do that.
0: Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So sometimes despite our best efforts, we still make a miss hire. Yeah. <laughs> Um, And it may be the right person in the wrong role or the wrong person for the organization or a clash of culture or worse, someone who, for the wrong reasons, wants that job. Yeah. I'm guessing that with the number of hires you've done, there have been some mishires. So what did you learn? (laughs)
1: Yeah.
0: What did you learn through the mishires?
1: Oh, I think, as you said, there's different types of mishires. Sure. I, I think it's really useful to think of it differently. and there have been, I think the first thing, my first category of mishires is just not aligned to the role. And I found that I think I've learned from that is how much recruitment must be a two-way process and how much I think recruitment processes need to set expectations for the person coming into the role and they can understand it. So I think for the first, the biggest set of mistakes, like you want someone in the role. So you want this amazing candidate you think so you don't really tell them what the role is that well so you just paint like everything's through rose colored glasses you're like oh yeah we can make that happen that will work that would be fine sure 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 to get them on board that never ends up well because there's just such a misalignment to what you actually need done versus what that person was expecting to do that that often goes quite wrong so I'm a big believer in like knowing what you need. And if you are changing the role for a candidate, which sometimes happens, a phenomenal candidate, actually change the role. Don't expect, you need to hire the thing that you wanted originally to. (laughs) Don't expect that actually, oh, I'm sure they will morph into that. So for me, the biggest one is like, make sure you're clear in the recruitment process about what the role is. And I like to like questions, I frame my questions also giving them information about what the role will look like so i want you to answer this question about past behaviors or challenging situations related to pace because we're currently working at this kind of pace and that's why so i'm trying to constantly give them more information about what it's really like even and particularly around the negatives because i want them to know when they're in it so i would say that's like my first big learning is the number of times i used to be like sure we can adjust yeah we can make it happen you can't. You have to be clear about what you need, and then the other one is like, yeah. Sometimes we just mishire. Like we don't. You can't properly assess everyone and get it right. Some people are acting not in everyone's best interest and might be trying to be deceive you. But sometimes also you just like you're miscommunicated. So like I'm thinking you're saying this, but you're really saying that, and it's just not working out. And I am a big believer of like very quickly sharing like, this is my expectations. They're not being met. Can you meet them? Giving people chances, but being like as fast as possible, you have to be very clear on what's not going right. And if it doesn't work, you quickly have to make that clear to everyone and find a different path. And sometimes that path is out of the organization, but that's why, I mean, our mechanisms around probation and things like that, I don't think probation should be a box ticking exercise. I think it's one of the most important things that organizations do because A, it helps set someone up to be successful more quickly. Good induction is like probation is really to me about induction, like good induction will pay dividends, but then also it gives you very clear a very clear cadence of having those honest conversations about performance. Um, so yeah, a few different sides of it, but it's like be very honest about what the role actually is. I guess it's the same answer. And then be very honest about how people are doing in that role. I am being on like direct and clear communication.
0: Yeah, and there's and there's there was that lovely moment where you talked as well about miscommunication. and we hear what we want to hear. Yeah, you know, and we make assumptions about what we're listening to.
1: It's so much.
0: That's that's really 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 helpful. Thank you, Kristen.
1: A good example of that is my favorite question to ask in an interview is when someone uses a piece of jargon. Just say, "Can you explain what that means to me?" And we don't often ask that question because we. It makes us look stupid to ask that, um, or we assume it does. But in truth, I remember doing teacher recruitment and the number of vice principal or like senior leadership roles that were like, I really care about teaching and learning. Teaching and learning is core, da 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 da. And the number of times I'd be like, stop the interview and be like, Can you just explain what teaching and learning is? And that was where we found all the good information. But actually, yeah, if I didn't ask that follow up, I'm just hearing. Oh, they! I care about teaching and learning. They care about teaching and learning. Perfect. Um, so I like going deep on the explain the jargon to me. The simplest question often is the most illuminating.
0: So, Kristen, um, one of the things we like to leave our listeners with is something to make them smile. Um, I'm guessing with the number of interviews you've had, you've had some ones that have made you smile. Do you want to tell us about one of your funniest interview experiences?
1: Sure. I feel like I've had a lot. Um, let's go with one for like the education half of the crowd. Um, I was interviewing a um, a fairly senior leader. So I think it was like a VP, that kind of level of role. And we were he was doing really well and like answering really strongly. And we had actually been really unsure if to even take him forward to first round of screening. And the reason was because his school had gone from outstanding to requires improvement in two years uh, which that's big to, mm. for that to happen as mm. uh, you and most of your education side listeners will know I said uh, we weren't going to necessarily bring you forward to interview for this role because of that can you is there a reason why this happened though because the rest of your CV fee- so strong all your answers have been so strong Can can you give me some explanation and understanding of this and he said to me he goes you're not going to believe what I'm about to tell you. So feel free to Google it after because I swear it's true. And I was like, okay, I can't wait for this one. Because our school was in a pool for the lottery and we won. <laughs> and yeah. So all the teachers in the school had won a major lottery jackpot and became like hugely wealthy overnight. <laughs> <laughs> and they were like lovely committed staff so they had stayed on to the end of the school year as you would but actually they just had like the vast vast majority of the staff reasonably so at that point in their lives careers retired so they had to restaff something like 70 percent of the school in a year
0: oh well good <laughs> story
1: i was like yeah you're right. I don't I am gonna Google this. This sounds so unbelievable, but you're so sincere about it and I I did check it was completely true. horrible and difficult for the school but I'm like that is the only reason I could think of that is actually a like totally crazy left field and I was like lesson learned whole staff should not go in on one lottery <laughs> No
0: absolutely not. Good story yeah. <laughs> good story. oh my gosh.
1: Oh dear. the school then like the next year the school went back up to good so it was just like a short rebuilding period so good news for the students and they, they got it back in the right place fairly quickly but I was like yeah I guess you're right I wouldn't believe this but it is absolutely true really
0: really funny really I mean sad funny great like such a mixture of things oh my gosh yeah, yeah. good story okay so lastly we all approach hiring staff with our previously held ideas prejudices, biases, based on our experience being hired, previous organizations, Mm. books we've read, things we've heard, podcasts we've listened to. What in your view, Kristen, is the best question that if we keep asking ourselves, we will continue to develop great hiring
1: practices? So for me, we talk a lot when we talk about, think about recruitment. A lot of people, one of the challenges of recruitment, a lot of people think that they just like inherently can assess and have a good gut of whether or not someone's gonna be good or in the role or not. And I think that leads to a lot of dangerous practice because it stops us from defining the role clearly. It stops us from like really evaluating, are we assessing for what we need? So for me, my number one thing is like, are you relying on gut? And are you thinking that you know or don't know? Cause I found at this point in my career, I've done a lot of interviews, yeah. um, a lot. And the number of times, I have been incorrect. So I might have a like initial impression. And then when I dig into it, either there's not underlying information to support that the person will be good in role, or actually like they've been poor in the first answer because they're really nervous or there are other factors. Whereas if I keep an open mind that they then are performing stronger as we go. So I think the one question to ask ourselves is like, are we using our own gut and intuition too much? So are we actually defining what we're assessing for and being very thoughtful about what we need and using that as our benchmark, not our previous assumptions? Because we'll do that anyways. I think constantly questioning our own guts, whether it's right or not, but more just like, let's just not use it that much.
0: Mm. So I've I think I've heard two questions in there, actually. I think I've heard a question about, have we really defined what we're assessing for? I think that's number one. Yeah. I think number two is, and any assessments that we are making about that person's ability to meet what we're looking for, can we ground
1: those assessments? And can we ground them in objective versus subjective? Mm. Um and I think this is really nice it goes back to your point about like the language you're using and the and how we speak. I know um a CEO of a very large um, startup definitely now a scale-up past Mm -hmm. startup. And she previously had been in a larger organization and they were finding a lot of bias in their hiring, particularly of hiring women into their engineering teams. Mm -hmm. Um, And she sat on a lot of interviews and it was finding that more and more the language they were using to describe female candidates was heavily subjective. Um, So whereas when they were described male candidates, they were heavily objective, like the experiences they had before, the scores they had gotten on the test, the what they said in the answer. So the problem statements they were saying. Whereas when they were talking about the female candidates, they were like, I'm not sure if she's the right fit. We're not, they were just using very open-ended. And she went to every hiring meeting, I think for at least six months, if not a year, and she brought a bell. And anytime she heard anyone using subjective language to describe a candidate, male or female, just any subjective language, she'd ring the bell and be like, not useful. And I just love that like, A, I can't believe that she did was so focused and was able to fit that mm. many into her, I'm mm. sure very busy schedule. But I love this, like, let's pick one thing, which is we're gonna focus on objective language about candidates versus subjective and use that as our benchmark mm. to help decrease bias. And I mean,
0: that's a, that's a brilliant story. Great tip yeah um, and a great tip and what what discipline to bring to your hiring process that's that's yeah. really really impressive how brilliant yeah, yeah lovely Kristen, it's been brilliant to talk with you today. Uh, You've you've shared so much expertise and insight and really practical, grounded advice with us. Thank you so much. It's been brilliant to talk with you.
1: Thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Really enjoyed it. Oh,
0: good. And for our listeners, we always follow up with some links and some post information. So if you want to find out more about what Kristen's doing, you'll be able to read about that in the links we'll supply. Thanks for listening to Let's Talk Leadership. For more, head over to HelenMGConsulting.com and find out about leadership programs and leadership coaching, helping you and your team be the best version of yourselves.